Welcome to the Smarter Psychometrics and Assessment Podcast, where we discuss the world of assessment and psychometrics, the role of artificial intelligence and machine learning, and how these all work together to provide decision makers with more accurate information about people, thereby positively impacting how students learn, helping people achieve more in their career, and empowering organizations to improve their human capital. We have all experienced bad tests in our lives, so here you will have an opportunity to learn how to build better and smarter tests, as well as hear from some of the leading experts across the world. I'm Nathan Thompson, and I've loved psychometrics and data science since my first statistics class in college. I'm hoping that this podcast will help you understand the field, appreciate the incredible work that goes into developing and validating a good test, and hopefully learn more about how to apply psychometrics in your own work. Thank you, everyone, for joining this webinar on the history of adaptive testing. This is more like a, a podcast interview with Professor David Weiss at the University of Minnesota and co-founder of Assessment Systems, talking about how he got interested in adaptive testing and response theory and where that research led him. All right. So first of all, Dr. Weiss, uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in West Philadelphia. Went to West Philadelphia High School, which was the equivalent of West Side Story in terms of uh, a, a range of race and ethnicity and that sort of thing. And graduated there in 1954, went to the University of Pennsylvania in 55, took a year off, and graduated from there in 59, then came out to Minneapolis and been here ever since. Cool. Well, those of you in my generation will be thinking West Side Story, you'll be thinking of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, West, West Philadelphia, born and raised. It's up. Well, there was a remake of West Side Story just recently. When that, it, it's still around. Okay. How did you get first interested in assessment? There's a story that you once told me about a digit repeating test. Well, I was a junior at University of Pennsylvania, majoring in psychology. And that department was full of what I call rat runners. <laughs> about only two or three of the faculty did anything with people. So they were all running rats. And there were a few courses that had to do with people. One of those courses was a course in tests and measurements, which I took mainly because it was one of the few applied courses that were available. When I say applied, it had anything to do with people rather than rats and pigeons. But in that class, the instructor was going through various kinds of tests. She got to the Stanford Binet IQ test, which is, if you're not familiar with it, it's an individually administered IQ test where a psychologist sits across the table from a kid and asks them various kinds of questions depending on their age. And it is an adaptive procedure in which the administrator has a choice of questions to ask from different levels of difficulty, which were stratified by age. And in the process of going through this test, she went through, there were some verbal kinds of questions and some numerical kinds of questions and some problem solving. One of my favorite problem solving questions was you walking down the street and you see an envelope on the ground, it's stamped an address. What do you do? Is the problem. Okay. Well, the correct answer, of course, is you, you'd be a good kid and you pick it up and you put it in the mailbox when there were mailboxes on every corner. And my facetious answer, of course, because you're growing up in Philadelphia was you pick it up, you rip off the stamp so you can use it yourself. And then you open it up and look to see if there's anything in there you can use to blackmail somebody. <laughs> But that, that, that thinking, which I did not express in class, led me to 
to begin to think about the measurement of intelligence and how it is based largely on your experiences as you grow up. And then there was the question of whether there's different kinds of intelligences, different kinds of, uh, of tasks at different levels of the Stanford Binet IQ test. And one of them that got me interested was um, what we call number series. Number series, the psychologist reads a series of numbers, two, five, seven, six, four, and so on. And then you're supposed to repeat them back. And so they start with four, four numbers, four digits, then they go to five, then they go to six, and so on. And different students in the class were reaching their limit at six or seven digits. And the instructor said, anybody think they can go further? I raised my hand. Well, anyway, to make the story shorter, I got up to 12 digits. And then she said, okay, but now we're going to do it. I'm going to read a different set of numbers and ask you to repeat them backward. And so I did that. <laughs> I got up to 12 digits. Nobody else could do do that. And then I started thinking about this is a highly selected Ivy League school, and everybody's supposed to be very, quote, intelligent, right? But why is there this enormous range of individual differences in the ability just to repeat a series of numbers? And so I began thinking about individual differences, individual differences underlying Individual differences, of course, is measurement. That's how we describe individual differences in psychology. And that was my initial exposure to measurement. And that's how I got interested in it. Very cool. Yeah, that uh, story always sticks with me since the same thing happened when I was an undergraduate. And we did the number series when talking about IQ tests. And I was the only one that could do it when they did it backwards. How many did you do? <laughs> they only went up to eight. They didn't go up to 12. Yeah. But then they were just done like that was a good enough example. Well, I probably could have gone beyond 12. I think it resulted from my musical training where you sort of put things in measures and 4-4 four, four time is 4 per measure. And so I broke it up into 4. It was, was chunking, which I hadn't talked about in those days and I hadn't identified it. But looking back, I kind of learned chunking from music and then I applied that to the number series test. You were being efficient. And I suppose <laughs> your interest in efficiency will, efficiency will show up later too as well. So how did you choose... But where to go to grad school? Uh, University of Minnesota. I came out here in 1959, and they never got rid of me. <laughs> what made you pick the University of Minnesota? It was recommended to me by Morris Vitellis, who was one of the principal developers of industrial organizational psychology, and I took a seminar with him. It was a graduate seminar, and we worked in his rotational guidance clinic, and I was administering tests and scoring them and, and that sort of stuff. And I had applied to Ohio State, who had a good program at that time in psychology, and they turned me down because I applied in clinical, which was very fortunate. And so I asked him where to go. <laughs> he told me where to go. But in the seminar, I used to sit with my feet up on the table waiting for him. And I, I, I always sit with my feet up on the table. I don't know why I still do it. And he, he would walk in. And he would go like this, get your feet off the table. But anyway, so he recommended the University of Minnesota. He said, go to a school where they have a wide range of coursework and programs and that sort of thing. If you don't know what you want, want to do, then you'll find something there that, that you like to do. And so I got in, I applied in counseling and clinical. I was admitted to both and uh, stayed in counseling because clinical psychology in those days had no idea what they were doing. Oh, especially their measurements were terrible. 
So who is your advisor at Minnesota then? Who'd you work with? My advisor was Lloyd Lofquist, who was counseling, rehab counseling psychologist, but he was just my nominal advisor. I worked with Renee Dowis, who was the project director on a project that I worked on for actually for 11 years. And uh, I learned everything that I knew from him for 11 years, more than I learned in any class. That's quite a lot. And uh, I suppose similar to my experience in working with you. What was your dissertation about? Oh, it was called a technique for curvilinear multivariate prediction, which was a uh, replacement for linear multiple regression because it could take into account simultaneously linear and nonlinear relationships. And I showed that in my dissertation that the cross-validation stability of the results from my method was better than that of linear regression, even when the regressions were completely linear and never did much with it after that. Still interesting. It's still, you know, still out there. And I wrote one or two papers applying it and never caught on. So I got involved in other stuff. I used to do a lot in what I call applied statistics. And I kind of gave, gave that up when I got deeply into measurement. Ah, cool. So after you graduated a, a grad school, what sort of work did you do? Well, I worked on this work adjustment project with Renee Dowis, which was in vocational psychology and did a lot of instrument development for original psychology applied to vocational rehabilitation, working on primarily methods for predicting job satisfaction from what we call vocational needs or preferences for satisfiers and occupations in developing methods for measuring what we call occupational reinforcer patterns, which were these patterns of satisfiers of various jobs. I started working on that project on day one and I stayed with it for 11 years. Did anything there prime you for your later work in the 70s when you got into IRT and CAT and the psychometric methodology? Well, what primed me for it was my use of computers, basically. I started yeah. using computers, which were big, ugly vacuum tube things at first that generated more heat than the air conditioner on top of the building that I'm in right now, but I, I got very proficient with computers in those days. I taught computer programming when I first came into psychology. You get other students and faculty, as some faculty in my classes, learn how to use computers. And one of them still is programming in Fortran from when I taught them in 1970. So it was my exposure to computers and the capabilities of computers that, that got me into um, in the measurement. In the uh, 60s, and I don't remember how this happened, but I had an exposure to the Plato system, which was developed at the University of Illinois. It was a very early, for then, very high-tech interactive computer system that on which they were delivering instructional materials in program instruction, branched instruction, basically. And I looked at that and I thought, well, if, if we can deliver instruction this way, we can deliver tests this way. And that's basically how I got into computer-based testing. Wow. When computers were still the size of a room, I suppose. Well, the, yeah, the system that was running the Plato system was, by then it was solid state in the 60s. When I started in the late 50s, it was still vacuum tubes. But, and they had these, well, they had graphics capabilities and all this sort of stuff, but they were very, very slow. And so the cartoons of the day were somebody sitting in front of the Plato system with spider whips holding them up because they had to wait so long for a response from the system to their program instruction. But in the, the mid-70s, the mid-60s, rather, was the, the Plato 
period, and Plato was supposed to replace teachers in the 60s. And of course, it never did. Eventually disappeared, and now, of course, with the capabilities that we have now and things, but it's a long, still a long way off. Yeah, so you mentioned coming back to the psych department, and how did you end up back in the psych department as faculty? These were the days before before you had to have a search to hire somebody. So it turns out that my former advisor became assistant vice president for academic affairs at the university. And he saw, and I saw that the research money was running out. We were funded for 11 years from the rehab funding, vocational rehab funding. And so mysteriously, a new position appeared in the psychology department. And I was pointed to it. Oh, wow. <laughs> no interviews. No, that's it. So did you start working on IRT and CAT when you first came to the psych department? Or did you slowly get into that then? Well, in the first year in psychology department, which was 1970, I got a small grant from the school and I hired a programmer who was a graduate, former graduate student of mine who got into statistics and to programming. And we programmed adaptive version of, of the Stanford Binet. We programmed the adaptiveness of the Stanford Binet into what I later called the stratified adaptive computer t- computerized test into a mainframe using the console. So we were the, probably the first to deliver any kind of adaptive test on a computer in 1970. And then one day in 1970, or maybe early 71, I don't recall, a guy from the Office of Naval Research wandered into my office in Elliott Hall and said, what are you up to? So I told him what I had been doing for 11 years, and he said, well, what are you interested in doing? And so I said, I'm interested in using computers to deliver tests. And he said, he asked me a couple of questions. He said, okay, write me a letter. And we'll sign it. Wow. Just like you get in the professor position. <laughs> yeah. So I wrote the two pages letter and that started in 15 years of fun. Oh my gosh. So no, 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 no competitiveness in those days. You know, that's just the way they did it. And this guy from ONR went around to various people and various sciences and trying to find people to support. They stumbled on me. <laughs> that was history. So- Wow, what a coincidence. Funny how that works. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was a coincidence. So what stood out to you about the stratified adaptive approach? You know, what shortcomings did it have and how did that lead you to some other discoveries? Well, there were a bunch of issues. One is when you break up your items by difficulty into strata levels of difficulty, which is what the Stanford Bidet did. You got a bunch of items, let's say, that differ that are similar in difficulty than what Benet did was was he had items that were 0.5 difficulty for a particular age group and that his stratification was by age, but we didn't have age for most variables. So we simply did it by difficulty. Well anyway, when you stratify by difficulty, your items are going to differ by discrimination. So one question was, well, do we put the highway discriminating items first or put them last? We put does it matter? Secondly, it was the question of, well, how do you add new items at the bank? There was no way of linking items into a, an existing bank 
in classical test theory. And so that was an issue. Another issue was, well, how do you score the darn thing? And so we came up with like 10 different ways of scoring this thing based on the difficulty of the items and the variation of difficulty for an individual, which, which we looked at as sort of an, an error measurement indicator. And so we had all of these questions that we couldn't handle within the context of classical test theory. So my graduate students at the time was Isaac Bay, Jim McBride, Brad Simpson, and Dave Vale said, let's look at item response theory. And I said, no, that's too damn complicated. It's not going to work. Because I had had a class in advanced measurement, which I have now been teaching for many years. And it was taught by a guy who walked in, walked up to the blackboard, picked up a piece of chalk, faced the blackboard, and derived equations. Oh, I hate that. And that was item response theory. No discussion of how to use it. No discussion of what it means, non-discussion of how how do you estimate theta. Well, maybe he did talk about estimating theta, but it was all equations, and I just didn't resonate to that. So I got to be in the clutch. (laughs) But anyway, so when my graduate students brought it up, I said, as I said, that's that's, that's too complicated. It's not going to work. Well, then he basically dragged me in kicking and screaming until I finally understood what the implications of it were for the problems that we had. And then I was all in. Okay, cool. Uh, it wasn't my decision. It was their decision. So how did you first work to apply IRT to the concept of adaptive testing? Well, it enabled us to, a way of, of selecting, once you had an item bank, enabled us to select items by item information. It enabled us to link items into a bank, to develop a large bank, and enable us to, Estimate theta with any subset of items that an individual took. And all of these problems were not solvable in the, in the context of classical test theory. And then we realized that, hey, we don't have to stratify our items by difficulty. We don't have to worry about whether items differ, by how to use discrimination within the strata. And, you know, all, all those issues just sort of evaporated. And because it solved all those problems, we continue to pursue it. Would you say that was the important breakthrough with adaptive testing was the application of IRT? Yeah, and actually it was really the first application of IRT. We were applying IRT to adaptive testing way before anybody. Was there any research going on outside the U of M in terms of IRT and CAT? Yeah, there were a few people. Well, there were people doing IRT research. Daryl Bach, for one, who just died recently, did a lot of important work in IRT, including developing the marginal maximum microestimation. Procedure and his students have done a lot. There was the other people that ONR, Office of Naval Research, supported were Mark Rieke, who at that time was at the University of Missouri and elsewhere later, Michigan State, I think it was. Miko Samajima, who did some of the basic mathematical work underlying IRT. Rieke primarily so that his work didn't duplicate my work, primarily concentrated on the, the multidimensional case by IRT. And that, that's been his major contribution. And uh, we use some some of the work that we did in some some of our applications as well. And, and there were other people in the, these were just the very early years. The, the three people that go and are supported were me, Mark, Rekase, and, and then later on others came forward. So you mentioned Dave Bale, Brad Simpson, Jim McBride. So what was some of that team that you had as part of the psychometrics research lab in the 70s, and where did they end up? Well, the two most prominent 
Well, in, in the seventies, it was it was Avell who started assessment systems with me in seventy nine. Brad Simpson, has known for the Simpson header algorithm for item exposure. Jim McBride ended up working for the ASVAB, was one of the major psychometricians for the ASVAB development. The ASVAB was the main reason why ONR wanted to support adaptive testing because they wanted a computer-based adaptive version of the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery, and that's been running now for 30, 40 years, something like that. About 30 years, I think. And let's see. Oh, Jim Jim McBride spent a number of years with the ASVAB. He ended up working for a testing company in Wisconsin whose name always escapes me for some reason or other. Renaissance Learning. Pardon me? Renaissance Learning. Renaissance Learning. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and they've developed a, a series of adaptive tests for reading and math and stuff like that. Then in later years... Yeah, I was the 70s and the 80s. There was Gage Kingsbury, who ended up single-handedly developing the adaptive tests that became the Northwest Evaluation Association, NWEA tests. I remember what they call them. Do you remember, Nate? They're called Measures of Academic Progress, MAP. Yep. Measures of Academic Progress. You're right. Yep. And then there was Tony Zara, who single-handedly went to the, the nurses licensing organization in Chicago and single-handedly developed the whole nursing license exam and then eventually moved with that exam to Pearson. And he's still at Pearson. Those, those are the, the major players who were my students. Okay. That, that's quite the team. So where did the, the CAT research go after that? You know, you, like, when did you finish the O&R research? And then they later started applying it to the ASVAB. And where did it go after that? Like, into Politivist, eventually got him interested in healthcare assessments. Can you speak about that? Well, that's a multi-pronged question. Okay. <laughs> we'll start with the 1980s piece first, and then we'll go back to the healthcare. Well, the, the ONR supported me from 1971 through 1985. We had three or four chat conferences that I organized, hosted, and there was one that was, the first one was in Washington. And after that, I took care of the hosting conferences about every two years, between 1977, 79, 81, I think, at 85, I quite remember. Those, those conference proceedings are all up on the website of CAT, the International Association for Computerized Adaptive Testing. And then, let's see, after after the ONR funding ended, I had in the process started the Journal of Applied Psychological Measurement, and my chat research sort of was kind of ad hoc there for quite a while until I sold the uh, journal to Sage Publishing in 1999, 2000, somewhere around there, after editing for 25 years. Then I started a bunch of unsupported chat research, and then about Six years ago, I worked with Robert Gibbons at the University of Illinois on project at the University of Chicago. I'm sorry. Now, I think it's a Chicago, it's at Illinois. But anyway, Gibbons was one of Box students. I made a, a, a several-year-long project in mental health, developing cat-based methods of depression and anxiety and that sort of thing. And he has set up a company that's been making those available. And after that, there were a couple of years and I got involved in a project with the Mayo Clinic, 
which ran for six years, just ended last year, in which we were looking at adaptive testing for what's called patient-reported outcomes. There was a, a big PRO, patient-reported outcomes projects funded by the National Institutes of Mental Health, and that was at Northwestern University. But they didn't do anything with hospitalized patients, and so the Mayo Clinic got funded to work on development of patient-reported outcome measures, adaptive patient-reported outcome measures with hospitalized patients. And the way we're looking at it from multidimensional CAT point of view, using multidimensional IRT, because everything that was done in the PROMISE project, which is the big project that was funded by NIH, everything was done in the PROMISE project was unidimensional. And we thought that we could get better results looking at it multidimensionally. And I worked with Chun Wag, who was here at the time, and I'm still working with her on a new Mayo project, which is coming up, which expands upon some of the work we did in the previous project. That's in the process being funded now. So that's another five-year project, and uh, hopefully I'll still be around in five years to complete that project. I hope so, too. And Gary Fasadi asked a question, how far are we today from the time of the microcat testing system? Well, the microcat testing system was the first adaptive testing system based on IRT, and it was developed on old IBM PCs. And we used floppy disks, and we had some desktops that had two floppy disks and maybe a five gig, five megabyte, five megabyte hard drive. And we were doing adaptive testing. And that was in the 19, early 1980s after IBM compatible and why they were ever called IBM compatible. I have no idea. PCs came out and they were, we were running DOS. And then we migrated, eventually we migrated off the DOS systems as Windows became available and MicroCat went to to Windows. We have never developed it for the Macintosh, however. And in the process, it became obviously independent of PCs. And we've continued to improve MicroCAD over the years in the Windows environment. And most recently, we have built at least one of our item analysis software packages, item and on onto the web so that it's basically item and anywhere you can run your smartphone or any any other device. So MicroChat has grown and has been renamed FastTest over the years because the MicroChat label didn't really apply because we were doing adaptive testing and related item parameter estimation and so on. Microcomputers that we, we were using with. So that's it's kind of the evolution of MicroChat into FastTest in a nutshell. Okay, thank you. And just coincidentally, I was looking through the attendees list here and Renee Dallas is listening in. Hey, Comrade Dallas. Actually, I just spent some time with him yesterday. He's doing well. Oh, that's good to hear. I still have not met Renee, and I think I would like to. You've never met him? No. Oh, the next, next time we, we do a Zoom, we're doing Zoom now because I don't want to bring any germs into his house. He's 93. Yeah, that's understandable. So we, you mentioned ASC being founded in 1979 with Dave Vale. We just talked about MicroCat. So what led you to founding ASC? Well, it became pretty clear as we were doing work on adaptive testing in the 70s that there was eventually going to be a need for software, number one, to implement IRT. Now, there were some other software packages, Box Company Scientific Software, had developed bylog and multi-log, 
around the time that we developed Excalibur for item parameter estimation, for IRT item parameter estimation, and all those initially were unidimensional. And we looked at bi-log and multi-log when they came out, so that they were pretty complicated and made fast, sophisticated user. We wanted to develop item analysis software and eventually adaptive testing software that could be used by anybody who at least knew the basics of IRT and the basics of adaptive testing. So we saw the commercial potential there and, and the need for making stuff available so that adaptive testing in IRT itself could spread around the world and replace the paper and pencil test. Speaking of which, in about 1970, around that time, I was invited to, to the Iowa testing programs in Iowa City to talk about, theoretically, my work in vocational psychology, but decided I'd rather talk about my ideas on computer adapt, computerized adaptive testing. So I went down there and I gave a little lecture on the use of computers and testing. And after I was done, a bunch of people came up, started asking me questions, and all of a sudden the crowd parted, which was like the Red Sea parting for Moses. <laughs> and this gray-haired guy walked, wearing a suit and tie, walks up, and he says, young man, I don't know where you get your ideas, but the computer will never replace the paper and pencil test. Wow. <laughs> I was short-sighted. He turned around and he walked away. <laughs> so I, I had no idea who he was. I said, so who is that? Who, who, who was that? He said, he's a director of the Iowa testing programs, founder of the Iowa testing programs. So he saw the computer as basically as a threat to his empire at that time. Oh, yes. I, I, to me, that was like waving a red flag in front of a bull. You know, that, that's all I needed was... Somebody tell me that it was wrong. <laughs> You're the kind of kid that somebody tells you. Yeah, I, remember, I was 35. This guy was probably 60, 65. He's getting ready to retire probably. And, you know, he's been around a lot longer than I had it, but I was a rebel. I think I was 35. I was about that. Oh, yeah. I think I was about 36, 37. Yeah, it was the, the same thing that got me interested in working with ASC, you know, for the past 14 years. It was that things like IRT and adaptive testing shouldn't just be, you know, behind the ivory towers of those big billion dollar assessment companies or even something like Iowa testing programs. There's a lot of modernization that can go happen. And it's, you know, like Prometheus bringing fire to the people. It's like more organizations can still use IRT if we had user-friendly software out to do it. Though we're still fighting that battle too, both with that and with the paper and pencil test delivery since we just had that news about the SAT finally going digital. And, you know, other assessment organizations have been doing it like you know, how long has nwa been doing their exams on computer was that 1983 something like that yeah yeah so it's certainly not new that's for sure no and, and unfortunately there's some negative trends going on one of those negative trends is is the movement backward toward multi-stage tests in place of adaptive tests by big organizations notably educational testing service and that's a giant step, as I said, a couple of years ago, we were in one of the IACAT conferences. That's a giant step backward because the, the early work in adaptive testing was two-stage tests and two-stage assembly, the simple case of a multi-stage test. And we know that two-stage tests and multi-stage tests are not as good as item by item adaptive tests. But 
ETS and their wisdom decided to move back. Hit the clock. That's true. 50 years. 50 years. That's the one time they move it back. Yep. Uh, you mentioned IACAT twice now. So I wanted to, to plug that for all the listeners. If you haven't joined, it is free to join IACAT. It is IACAT.org. And we hold a conference every other year, usually in odd number of years. But because of COVID, we delayed it a year. And it'll be held this fall in Frankfurt, Germany at, like, at the university. So if you're interested, go to that website and please join us to learn more about CATA.com. We just had a question from Mohammed Bark. Do you think that CAT can be used to measure the academic achievement of school students? And how do you explain these results to the parent? I can give an initial response to this. And the answer is absolutely yes. There are a large number of organizations that do this. And there are a number of very large-scale delivery platforms in the U.S., like NWA that we've mentioned, Renaissance Learning, Imagine Learning, and so on. And these, these do adaptive test delivery of educational testing. And they will provide scale scores to the students and the parents to help them interpret it. So instead of providing data, they'll provide, like, I think the NAP scales students from 200 to 900 or something like that. And that's all K-12 students. So like you expect third graders to be 270 to 290 and you expect fourth graders to be 290 to 340 or something like that. But Dave, what do you think about using CAT for academic achievement? What are the benefits when it comes to retesting, vertical scaling, and things like that? Well, as, as Dave mentioned, CAT is being used for achievement testing in a lot of places. And the issue of explaining the results to Parents is no different than explaining the results of any test to parents. They get a score, and the score can be converted onto any scale that you like. It doesn't have to be on the same scale with scores below zero is negative, and those above zero is positive. You can convert it to a mean of 15 standard deviation of 10, a mean of 100 standard deviation of 20, whatever you want, like any other test score. One of the advantages that I see of adaptive testing and IRT, in using IRT is that in IRT, you not only get a score for an individual, but you also get an individual error of measurement associated with that score. And what that means is, and of course, you're going to say, well, how do you explain that to a parent? Well, that means that you can put an error band around the score instead of saying, well, your kid's score is 120 on a score scale of, with a mean of 100 and a standard deviation of 20. So they're one standard deviation above the mean, which is at the 84th percentile, if it were normally distributed, which it probably isn't anyway. <laughs> but anyway, so you can put this error band around scores and then communicate that to the parents and say that, okay, our best estimate of the score is 120, but it you know, could be as high as 125, could be as low as 115, because all scores have some level of inaccuracy. I, I think that's something that using IRT, we go through this whole process of using IRT to estimate theta, and then we convert it to a score and we output a single number, and we're throwing away information. That information is important because it tells you something about how good your measurements are. When, when you do any kind of measurements, physical measurements, get on the scale, you get on your bathroom scale and, and you weigh, let's say, 160, and then you get off and you get back on, you weigh 158, and you get back on and you weigh 162, depending on how accurate, how precise your scale is, how good your scale is. Well, measurements in psychology are the same way. They are somewhat imprecise and i think it's it's important for us to communicate that imprecision when we 
communicate to, to parents and other stakeholders. But anyway, to get back to the question of adaptive testing, well, why would we want to use adaptive testing? Well, we use adaptive testing because it gives us scores that can be more precise for any given individual. And so with a good adaptive test, we can get better scores and better scores allow us to make better decisions. Yeah, absolutely. You know, research has shown, you know, on average, I would say you can reduce the test length by 50% without any loss of precision, right? Or at least, yeah, depend, depending on the, on the item bank and how, how you implement your test. Yeah, I remember you and I did that work on one of those mood disorder personality questionnaires like 20 years ago. And it ended up being more than 90% reduction in terms of test length because there, the original assessment was 600 items, which was just bizarrely too long. Oh, the original was 600 items. I think I got it down about 28 yeah. <laughs> on, on average or something like that. Um, now, 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 you may raise the question of well, what is this increase in precision from adaptive testing bias? Other than we can say that this score is better than the score that you would get out of a conventional test. You know, I'm in the process of investigating that question right now, and I have a little bit of data that I can share with you without showing you the details. Basically, what I did was I asked that question, if we have scores from real adaptive tests and there are differences in the precision of the scores across individuals, if I subdivide my group of individuals, let's say I've got 500 individuals into subgroups based on their precision. So I've got a group of very precise measurements for some individuals and a little less precise and a little less precise. And I've got a group of measurements that are pretty bad for the lowest group of individuals. Well, what I did was I took some data like that and computed the validity against an external criterion for the total group. And that validity was about 0.2. And then I looked at the validity within each of the subgroups. And what I found was that in the high precision group, the validity was as high as 0.6. Wow. Not 0.2, but 0.6. And as precision increased, as the standard error of measurement increased, the validity dropped. It was a beautiful moderator effect. Now, I haven't run moderated regression yet. This is a classical moderator. So what that tells me is that because adaptive tests are more precise than conventional tests of the same length and can be equally precise to a conventional test at much shorter lengths, but let's take the first scenario where they're more precise than conventional tests, we should get better predictive validity, much better predictive validity from adaptive tests than we did from conventional tests. And I'm in the process right now of replicating that finding. I've replicated it in one small data set. I'm looking at replicating it in another data set. And I think I'm getting the same kind of results, not as striking, but a similar result where as you increase the error of measurement in a group, the validity goes down. You'd expect that from classical test theory. Nobody, as far as I know, has demonstrated with, with IRT and with adaptive testing. So I'm replicating it in conventional tests, trying to replicate it with adaptive tests. So if anybody's got any data sets where they have validity criterion, a predictor that can be scored by IRT, let me know. I'd love to play with your data. Let's see if I can replicate that in your data. 
Yeah, that's a very good point about how, like you said, we're often throwing away information by not considering standard error measurement when we do predictive analyses or other types of validation. Yeah, when, when I looked at the standard error across the group as a predictor variable, and in addition to theta predicting the same criterion that I was just talking about, the um, multiple regression of uh, theta plus standard error at the individual level was almost as high as the moderated correlation for the very precise measurement. So that was a suppressor effect and serves a suppressive effect. And I'm I'm looking to replicate that as well. Well, speaking of applications, we just had two comments in the chat about applications. One is from Christian Barasa, PhD student specialized in CAT and IRT, and also a research professor at University of Montreal. He says we're currently adapting developing a computerized adaptive placement test for Quebec's immigrants. That's a very interesting project. I'm just going to ask, is it on like job skills in general, or is it just like on languages? Okay, languages. Yeah, I believe there's a similar project going on in Netherlands with testing immigrants for Dutch that is being worked on with CETO. I'm not sure if you're involved with them at all or in contact with them, but that's a very interesting project. And then also from Malawi, now he's doing research on assessing the reliability of CATs for college entrants communication skills examinations in Malawi. He says Malawi has never administered CAT exams. I'm trying to advocate for that after studying this benefits providing precise measurements. Yeah, we could certainly help you, but you said you asked for some advice. We can give you some advice and provide free access to our adaptive testing platform for research. Our test, we talked about IPGRAPH before, MicroCAD is now called FastTest, and we make FastTest available for research projects with graduate students. So we did it for University of Johannesburg last year, and I can put you in touch with the researchers there. You might be interested. Uh, with that, does anybody else have any questions for Dr. Weiss about you know his original background to getting interested in psychology or the seminal computerized adaptive testing research with IDA response theory and stratified adaptive or stratified exams in the 70s or later applications of CAT to more assessment situations like we were talking about the patient report about. We still have a couple of minutes left here. If any of you have any questions that you'd like to pose to Dr. Weiss. Meanwhile, I did have another question on my list. Dr. Weiss, how many grad students would you say you've worked with over the years? Well, you know, I just did a rough count the other day. I think there's 37. 37. I suppose that's just the ones that uh, did the finish the dissertation with you. There's many more that you've worked with, especially that have come from other areas, right? Uh, yeah, there, there's a couple of my former students who never finished for various reasons. Then there, there were a bunch of MA students, people who decided they didn't want to go on for PhDs, but that doesn't, that's not included in the 37. And on the psychology department website, there's a, a list, a searchable list of PhDs for the whole department identified by advisors. I went for that the other day just because I thought you might ask me that question. <laughs> And one did a rough, rough count. I might, might have discount. I don't know. Okay. Very interesting. Neil Perinas just asked, how do you see the future of CAT? What could be next if there's any? Well, I think the future of CAT is multidimensional with qualifications. Multidimensional CAT is, it has been developed based on multidimensional IRT, has a problem that is rarely addressed. It's addressed, but it's, it's sort of, written off. And that's the problem that the multidimensional models that are used now, the ones that Mark Rekase has developed and others have used, and, and I have applied myself, 
in the Mayo Clinic project are compensatory. And what that means is that a high score on one dimension can compensate for a low score on another dimension. Now, to me, that is illogical in the context of ability and achievement measurement, but probably is okay in the context of attitude measurement, personality measurement, patient reported outcome measurements, where there is the possibility, at least theoretically from a psychological point of view, where certain characteristics of an individual can compensate for other characteristics in terms of, of outcome. But in the context of ability and achievement measurement, I think it's illogical. I take the extreme example of you're trying to measure mathematics achievement and you give somebody a word problem and there's certain mathematical, certain arithmetic operations or mathematical operations necessary to solve that problem. But the the context is in a given language. And if I take that question and give it to a person who is not familiar with that language, there's no way that a very high mathematical ability can compensate for the lack of verbal ability in that particular language. So I think that multidimensional IRT is useful outside the ability and achievement domain, but I have problems with the ability and achievement domain. Now, many years ago, Brad Simpson developed a what he called a non-compensatory model, and some others have called it a partially compensatory model, and in which the multidimensional operation is one not of addition, which is compensatory across traits, but it's multiplicative. So that if you are very low on one trait and you multiply that low probability times high probability on another trait, the low probability is going to drag down the high probability on the other trait. And that that's a partially compensatory model. But then there are operational problems in implementing that model. So even though multidimensional IRT is useful in certain areas of adaptive testing, I don't think it's going to be universally useful because it violates that, that compensatory. The, the traits involved can violate the compensatory assumption of the model, or put another way, the model is not appropriate for certain kinds of traits. Where adaptive testing is going to go in the future, I think that one of the things that we need to do, and it may turn out this is not IRT-based adaptive testing, is we need to use the capabilities of computers now with the graphics and all the other advanced capabilities of computers that we didn't have 50 years ago when we first started out to make our testing more realistic, more interactive, even moving toward eventually maybe virtual reality so that we can put people in a situation and measure what they do in that situation, which should get us more higher levels of validity simply because the testing situation basically mimics the situation that we're trying to predict. And so, okay. and then the other thing I think, think we need to do is adaptive testing needs to be much more closely integrated with instruction. And actually, when I coined the term adaptive testing in 1971 or 1972, I used the term adaptive because at that time, there, the Plato system was talking about adaptive instruction. And so adaptive testing is tailored testing, response contingent testing, 
branch testing and you know, a bunch of other kinds of uh, terms refer to it. But I wanted to emphasize the fact that ultimately adaptive testing and adaptive instruction should be merged and everything that happens in an instructional computer-based instructional context should be used to measure the individual without testing being separate from instruction. I won't be around to see it happen, but maybe this will happen. Yeah, there's definitely some work on that, though, too. You know, that's what Alina Vondavier is working on and yeah, some of the other educational assessment companies, or their e-learning companies as well as educational assessment, like Brian Stops Learning and Imagine. It, we talked about, like, uh, item types and simulations and that sort of thing. We had two questions about that. One asked, is there any way to use CAT tests other than MCQ? And somebody else asked about doing performance exams beyond multiple choice items. And uh, those are definitely the case. You know, mentioned the mood disorder that Dr. Rice and I had worked on 20 years ago. We were doing Likert-based items for that. The Mayo Clinic project that he's working on and other patient-reported adaptive tests use Likert-style items with the, the Samagina's graded response model. My dissertation looked at using the generalized partial credit model in CATS. So there are certainly types of CATS out there that use that. There's also one of the new things where Dr. Torres is talking about simulations is the use of process data. So if you think about a question where you've got a bunch of countries on a map and student has to draw five labels over to label five countries, conventionally that's going to be scored on zero to five points with the generalized partial credit model. But there's so many other pieces of information that are being gathered there in terms of what's being dragged first. Is it being dragged off to the side before being dragged to the correct answer? There's all this type of information that's not being collected on computerized data or computerized testing. And there's, a, I think, a, a green field there in terms of how to use that sort of information in CAT. Dr. Weiss, Cha Hung Chang also asked, can you share your thoughts on CAT and AI integration? What was the last part of your question? Can you share your thoughts on CAT and AI integration? AI, artificial intelligence. Well, CAT is artificial intelligence. That, that's what I always say, too. You know, it's something that w- w- was done by humans years ago with the Stanford Bidet, right? Yeah, we, yeah we, we were doing adaptive testing in the 70s, and the concept of artificial intelligence didn't pop up until, what, 10, 20 years ago? Mm-hmm. And I read a quote once saying that artificial intelligence is always like three years ahead of what we're doing right now because we think of something that is vague and super advanced, but really it's, in a lot of cases, stuff that we're doing right now. No, it's artificial intelligence is, is machines are basically, the way I look at it, adapting to the individual, and that's what adaptive testing does. Yeah, because really adaptive testing goes back even farther than Stanford Binet when you talk about you know, professors giving oral exams to their students 500 years ago at a university, right? They would adapt the difficulty level. Yeah, or med- medical doctors going through a medical interview where you ask a question and depending on how they how the patient responds, you go down one path, and if they respond a different way, you go down another path, and you look for different kinds of indicators of different kinds of diseases, and that's, just, that's adaptive testing. Yep, I totally agree. All right, we've got one more question before we finish up here, and that's from Dennis Federiakin on what do you think on CAT with CDM, cognitive diagnostic models? With CAT with the cognitive diagnostic models, I haven't really follow that literature very carefully, so I'm not sure. I have a vague idea about how cognitive diagnostic models work. They're basically latent-class models, and I don't see why CAT can't be applied to them. I'm just not sure how. Okay. Yeah, in a lot of cases, I think it's parallel where they provide a CAT to get an overall score, but then they also use a cognitive diagnostic model to get like a 
the skill profile of where students are and their fractions knowledge. Can they divide fractions, add fractions, multiply fractions? That's right. Um, if you're interested in that, I recommend you go look at the work by Alison Ying Cheng at the University of Notre Dame. She's one of the leading researchers on that. Uh, then we just had one late question here, which I think would be a great one to edit, end on. And that is, I'd like to know which achievement you are most proud of. Which achievement I'm most proud of? Oh, it's a tough one. Well, it's it pretty much started the field of chat. So that's one. I founded this applied psychological measurement. That's two. Nate and I founded IOCAT, which is three. And then there's assessment systems. It's four. And then there's Nate. I'm proud of Nate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't easy guiding me through your program, I'm sure. Well, I, I, I guess it would be CAT because I've stuck with it for 50 years now. Yep. And it's touched a lot of people. And you think of how many students have taken a CAT exam over the past 30, 40 yeah, years. Yeah, it, it, it's been gratifying to see it spread throughout the world. And I'd like to see it spread some more. So we, we need some more spreaders, <laughs> people who are going to carry, carry the message and implement CAT. And, and I, I should mention that if, if I live long enough, I'm writing a book on CAT and I've got Another chapter and a half to go. So maybe in a, a year or so, you'll see a book from me and Nate and another fella from Turkey that goes into the basics of CAT and how to implement a CAT system and all that sort of stuff. So finally writing it all down, I've resisted it for so long, but it's, it's a big project. Okay. Well, thank you. And thank you to all the attendees for listening in and providing such actual questions. I'm glad we had such good attendance here and then this will be recorded and hopefully be put up for anyone else who wasn't able to attend. And then, of course, lastly, I'd like to thank Dr. Weiss for providing us an hour of his time and giving us such a wonderful story about you know, how he got interested in psychological assessments and where they led them where that led him down 16 years of research. And thank you all for coming. I appreciate the opportunity. Excellent. With that, I will shut this down and everybody have a wonderful afternoon wherever you are. Thank you, Pete.